Amen. Good morning. You guys can have a seat. I was going to read that passage as a part of the message, but it had too many names on it, so I just gave it to Nicole. So we're going to pick up there in the very next verse in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, great, stay where you are. If you need a Bible, there's one in the chairs in front of you. Today what we see in Ezra is this massive shift among the community of the people of God. And so we're, we just heard about the return of the second wave of exiles. And so if you're unfamiliar with the story, here's where we've been. The people of God that God delivered out of slavery in Egypt are then given land. They become a kingdom called Israel. And as, as they do, they desire to have a king and to live like the people around them. And that's kind of the beginning of the end for them. They want to live like the world they live in more than they want to live for the God who gave them their kingdom. And so they ask for kings and they struggle with kind of all these, all these different sins and idolatry, worshiping the false idols and false gods of the communities of the people around them. They have this tendency to marry outside of their faith. A lot of times it reads like outside their race, but it's actually outside of their faith is the point. So people that convert to Judaism, people that convert to worshiping God, doesn't matter where they're from, they can marry them, but God has told them only to marry to within their faith. So they violate this, they worship other gods, and, and just consider how this one fact of marriage impacts their worship, right? We see this with the second major king. After Saul, we see David, right? And then David has, uh, has a son named Solomon, and he marries all these different women, has kids with all these different women, and then his sons, the people who are supposed to lead after him, don't have a solid faith. And just imagine this, you're Solomon who worships God, but you have this kid with this woman over here, and she worships something else or someone else, and so your child is raised with kind of a, a with raised not to worship God. And so this becomes kind of the, the end of the people. God is calling them to repent and to return to him, and they don't. And so God said, God ups kind of the, the call for them to repent and to return. He says, listen, if you don't, then I'm going to have you captured and enslaved again. When they still don't listen, God causes Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar to conquer them and exile them into captivity. So we went through the book of Daniel and their struggles in captivity. And then the beginning of Ezra kind of picks up at the end of Daniel where God starts releasing them to come back into their nation. Now they get a kind of a, a new lease on life. They get to go back to Jerusalem. They get to go back to their land. They're kind of still second class citizens. They're not quite where they were. But they have an opportunity to rebuild. And that's where we are. Ezra sees the first wave of returning exiles under Zerubbabel. He writes about that. They return to Jerusalem and they begin to rebuild their temple. They focus the primary. The first thing they do is focus on rebuilding their worship. Then the next thing we see is they begin to rebuild their homes. That's kind of where we are today. And so this second wave of returning exiles is coming back. And as we saw at the end of chapter 8, they're worshiping together. They bring sacrifices. They join the worship of the people that are already there. Now, this is going to, pardon the pun, but hit home. This is going to really affect their homes today. And so we're going to try to look at this. And, and I set as a goal... Offend everyone so no one feels left out. So that's the goal today, all right? And so I figure if we can offend everybody, I haven't had a Sunday off in a while, maybe nobody will show up next week and I go off-roading or something, right? So here we go. I want to talk about change. So I'm going to put this on the screen. So a main idea today, transformation. What would it require to see major transformation sweep through Generations Church? Again, we can't control anything else, right? 
So it's just us. What would it take for us to see major transformation here? Is it even possible? And do we even want change like that? Right? Do we really want to see change? Like we've talked about this for the last year and a half. The church in America is pretty unhealthy, right? And we've seen that as it struggles through COVID and, and, and we see the politicization of the division in the church. We see all these things. I finally said that word I was trying to say last week. That was good. All right. So what about some things like this, right? Reprioritizing our lives around our faith. In other words, changing our schedules and our lives around our faith. How many of us here like, have no community group because, well, I'm too busy during the week, right? I don't do anything except for show up on Sundays when I can because I'm too busy. This would be reorienting our lives around faith. What about sexual sin in the church? Sexual sin in the church is no different than sexual sin outside of the church typically, right? And so that's anything other than one man, one woman inside of a marriage consensually sharing that bond for a lifetime. Anything outside of that, extramarital, premarital, anything. But it's widely either, if not accepted in the church, acknowledged. Acknowledged is real. Acknowledged is something that's probably not going to change. What about hobbies as idols today? What about more commitment to sports teams than to Jesus? I know. I just touched a nerve. I get it, right? What about that, though? Right? What about our level of commitment to other things, hobbies? What about financial commitments? Does your Starbucks budget come before your giving? Right? I mean, let's just be practical. Do you have to have a cell phone? Probably not. I know the world lives on those for young people. It's true. I grew up without one. You can do it, right? <laughs> but does that budget come before what God calls us to give? Politics. Here's we'll just piss everybody off. All right, so let's just admit the church is highly divided around politics, right? How do you know if this is you? Well, if you think the other political party is the enemy and your political party is the solution, you're probably knee-deep in it, right? You're probably, oh, if we could just get my guy or my girl in the office or whatever, oh, well, this one. To change a nation, you have to change their hearts. Politics will never change the heart. Jesus is the answer to all these things, right? Jesus is the answer to our, to our struggles in America, but we go at them different ways. We prioritize different things. And in the church, it tends to be an idolatry of those different things. So now that I've offended everybody, let's get to scripture, right? Ezra chapter nine, verse one, it says this, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, this is Ezra writing, he's now joined the story and it's about him as we saw last week. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been the foremost. So after worship breaks out in Jerusalem, the temple's been rebuilt, worship is going, this new wave of exiles returns, they join worship as well, they bring this offering, there's this big, almost feast-like celebration, and then some of the people of Israel including some of the leaders, come to Ezra with an issue and say, listen, here's the problem. The people of God are still intermarrying with other races or nations. And again, I want you to hear this, and I want you to misunderstand this, right? This is about diluting their faith, not their ethnicity, 
right? Their faith and their ethnicity is one thing as they speak about it. Now, that's not necessarily true. You can be born Jewish and not practice Judaism, right? We know that today. But in this moment, what they're talking about is this one and the same thing, that to be Jewish is not necessarily to be born there. Many of them were born in Babylon, but it's to practice the worship of God who created everything, the God of the Bible. And when you marry outside of that, what you do is you dilute the home, right? What you do is water down the faith in the home. So the sin of the return to exiles is this. It's not prioritizing faith in your own home. That you would choose anything else in your own home other than the singular priority of worship, of faith, right? That you would do anything. And so that's our examples today. Faith, polit- I mean, uh, politics, and sports, and idolatries, and finances, and all these different things. Those are our examples. Here, they would go beyond Jerusalem. They would go into the areas of the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Hittites, all these other ites, right? All these people around them who have other worship practices, And they're finding them and maybe there's a financial reason for marrying. Or maybe the woman's just beautiful and that's enough reason for a guy to marry her. And what they're saying is what you're doing is you're watering down the faith in your home. And when you do that, the reason you're doing it is you are choosing things of the world, whatever they may be, over what God has given you. That's called idolatry. And so here's your sin. You're not prioritizing faith in your home by making faith in your home the singular priority. Everything else can come in after that. Your marriage, your children, your vocation, your education, your time, your fi- everything else can come in after that. But the singular priority of faith. So same sins as before the exile. We'll put this up. Ezra finds the people living in the same sin and idolatry that God had exiled them for. The sin is not prioritizing faith in their homes and families over worldly things. Here should be the warning for them and for us. They return to the very same sins that had them exiled. Okay? So they go back to the very thing that God has just released them from the penalty of. Now, we know Ezra is this guy who has given himself over to studying scripture and really lives a life and and desires to teach other people the Bible, that he would want to pass on what God has given him and, and how God has impacted his life. And so he hears this and immediately knows, listen, this is the very same thing that got us exiled. This is the, if we want to picture it like this, when God lays his hand of blessing on us and we're right here, no one can touch us right? The nations around us, they can't affect us. And, and, and then the rain falls on our crops and our animals live and our, and our sons and daughters are, are, turn out to be healthy and successful. All these things happen here. But as we sin, God slowly lifts his hand away. As he calls us to repentance, he slowly lifts his hand if we don't. And Ezra is saying, listen, here's the call to repentance. Verse three, Ezra says this, as soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and I pulled hair from my head and beard and I sat appalled. Ezra is appalled, his words, right? That the people have not prioritized faith in their home and they've done so by marrying other people who are not of the same faith, therefore not prioritizing faith in the one key 
relationship in your life or the, or the main set of relationships in your life, the home. And so he sits there and he just is literally just appalled and, and in pain and he tears at himself even. I love the contrast between Ezra, who pulls out his beard, and Nehemiah, who we'll see in a few chapters, who says, if you do this again, I'm going to pull out your beard. <laughs> you can tell why ne Nehemiah is my favorite, right? <laughs> there are those days. <laughs> see, the gospel is this, right? That God created you, loves you, designed you, knows how you work best, knows that faith should be the priority in your home, and everything else should fall underneath that but also understands we've all failed here. We all fall short. We've all sinned, and, and sin, simply put, is us choosing our own way over God's way, of choosing my choice over God's choice. And so knowing we've all sinned, God enters into our story, Jesus, God become flesh. He comes in and he lives our life. And one of the things he does is he lives this perfect life of worship and obedience to God, is he prioritizes faith first, over everything else in the world, modeling for us how to live with God as a priority over everything. And so he's not just a good model, he's also the perfect sacrifice. He is God who is sinless human also. And so he goes to the cross, he dies for our sin, to cover our sins, to bridge the gap that sin has given us, the gap in between us and our creator. To reconcile that, Jesus literally hangs between heaven and earth, literally hangs between God and man as mediator. That bridge back to our creator. He dies for our sins, he resurrects to give us new life. He has ascended alive today on the throne and we worship that Jesus today. That Jesus has called us to worship him and him alone. That we would give that core part of our heart to Jesus and him alone and that we would lay everything else down. No matter what that means, that we would lay everything else down. Jesus says it this way in the Gospel of Luke. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That means literally die to yourself daily and follow me, he says. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What does it profit a man if his candidate wins the next presidential election, but he loses his faith in the process? What does it profit someone if they make all the money and all the joy in the world, but spend eternity separate from God? What does it profit us if we pass on to our children that there are other things that can crowd out our faith in our life by not prioritizing our faith in our home? What do we hope that they will gain and what does Jesus say we all lose? And so Jesus puts this priority. There's me and then there's everything else. Or there's me and there's nothing else. And that's okay. But when you put me first, you live for me, everything else will figure itself out. You want to fix your marriage? Live for Jesus first. Want to raise better children? Live for Jesus first. Live for Jesus first, foremost. And all these other things will fall into place. Need to overcome an addiction? Live for Jesus. Let Jesus be the one that fixes the addiction. Rather, we crowd up our homes with so many things that eventually Jesus just gets pushed out. 
In this time with Ezra, they're doing that. They're crowding faith out of their home by marrying outside their faith, bringing other faith into their home. There's more influence in your children in your home than we will ever have. Right, we have your children. If your children are out back with Brooke or, or, well, Brooke's right here, so they're not out back with Brooke because Brooke is not omnipresent. But, you know, so anyhow, if her team is out there, if your kids are here, just realize that in the span of your lunchtime and, and, and time after lunch today, you have more influence in them than their teacher does right now, right? All the influence we have is nothing compared to the influence you have in your home. It's not what you say, but it's how you live and what you do. Your priorities show up. And that's what gets passed on. Verse 4, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, because of the faithfulness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. I want you to get this image. Ezra's sitting, his word, appalled, angry, frustrated, in pain over the sin of God's people, but not just the sin of God's people anywhere, the sin of God's people that had been exiled or born in exile, enslaved, and then had the privilege of returning home by God. Those people are disobeying God. Not the people that are born in slavery who might be angry at God or thinking something different, but the people that God has released and sent home. The people God has been working with to rebuild their temple. The people that just finished worshiping God are the ones that have compromised their faith. Verse 5, In the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn. And I fell upon my knees and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God. Here's what Ezra does. Ezra prays. Ezra, in his pain and his frustration, has taken that. It's been visible. People are now crowded around him. From the morning, it's now evening. And they've kind of come around him. And it says that some are trembling for being disobedient. Some are very concerned about their position with God right now. Some are very concerned about the status, if you will, of their faith. And, and is God is God calling them to return or is it too late? Is God going to, in his, in his displeasure for them not learning their lessons, is he going to release them back into captivity? And so there's similar, it says trembling. And Ezra's frustration just sits there and he sits in this for so long and then it's evening time and he begins to pray. The church in America doesn't really get this very well not very good at prayer in general, especially corporate prayer, or even more so responding in prayer first before we act. See me, I'd be sitting there, I'd be that guy, and then, but I would have said lots of things that probably shouldn't have been said long before I prayed, right? And let's just admit, we all have our tendencies. There are the ways we would act. Ezra sits in this for a bit and he opens his hands up as a posture of surrender to God, as a posture of openness to God and he begins to pray and here's his prayer. Verse six, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens and from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, for, and for our iniquities 
We, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. Ezra begins to offer this corporate confession, right? Corporate, meaning of all the people. Ezra's not confessing his sin. In fact, today, Ezra will include himself in the we. We have sinned, God. We have fallen short. It is our iniquity. It is our sin. It is our failure. We have failed you, God. And yet Ezra has not done the very thing that he's talking about. I'm sure he's got places in his life where they could improve, where in his home he could be a better Ezra than he is. But the sins of the community are not his sins. But he prays a corporate confession before God, the whole body of people. A confession over the sin of the people. I may not be guilty of a specific sin in our church or in our neighborhood or in our community or in America. But America has some corporate sins. Our church has some corporate sins. Right? Our political nature, the sexual sin, the things that we talked about earlier, the idolatry of sports teams and different things and different figures and pop icons. Do we all share that? So whether or not it's my personal struggle or your personal struggle, let's not miss that the idea is we're all in this together. Again, the American church sees very individual faith. The Bible never does. It sees us in a journey together, especially in the local church, that we're in this thing together. And Ezra prays this corporate confession. Verse 8, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us secure hold within his holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves. And remember, they're still second-class citizens, even though they're back in Jerusalem. He says, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. He says, God has been graceful and delivered us even in our sinfulness. It's not like in their exile, they fixed everything. It's that they had a penalty. They paid their penalty. God even extended it because they had gotten worse for a season. And then God let them return. And there was this open call to return. If you want to go back and rebuild the temple, you can return. If you want to return now the temple's back, you can return. That was the second wave that we just read about last week and this morning from the call. It's not like they fixed everything, but as soon as they get back here, they realize, hey, we're in kind of the same place. Verse 12, he says this. Verse 10, excuse me. And now, our God, what shall we say after this? We have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying the land you're entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands when there are abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. So Ezra confesses their sinfulness, but he backs up in time. Now remember, over the last year, we've kind of done a survey of the Old Testament. We taught through Exodus, and we read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and our community groups, right? And then we went through First and Second Samuel here on Sundays, and we read through the rise and the fall of the kingdom and some of the applicable prophets, right? And then we worked our way through Daniel and the time of exile. Now we're talking about the return from exile as they're moving back into Jerusalem. That's pretty much the story of the Old Testament. So Ezra backs up and he says, remember when, when the prophets called us to not do this. 
when the prophets called us to return, remember when God spoke to us and called us not to live this way. And again, he includes himself in this corporate confession. Verse 12, therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters from their sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat of the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. He said, remember when God sent you into the land and there were Canaanites in the land. And he said, I want you to destroy everyone, man, woman, child, beast, everything, because I don't want the sin of Canaan to infect the people. I know a very severe charge, go wipe out everybody. But God was destroying sin. And he didn't want his people to be corrupted by that sin. What did they do? They went in and destroyed most and kept some. They took some of the beautiful young women as wives and they kept some of the animals and they, and, they, and, they, and they kept some people to be servants. And what happened? The idolatry of the Canaanites pops up inside of Jerusalem. And so they never repent. They never repent. They're exiled. And then God lets them start to return and rebuild their worship first and then begin to rebuild their homes. And that's where they are. And we build their families. And what we're finding out is they're still marrying outside their faith. They're still valuing the things of this world more than the things of God. And Ezra calls them to remember the history of this. Verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? See the tide of marriage and faith. Marry people with people who practice these abominations, these false worship practices. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there would be no remnant nor any escape? Ezra says, we deserve your judgment. But if I just asked, if we just kind of did a, a quiet, silent, kind of a nameless, faceless poll, like, do you deserve hell? Like eternal separation from God. You know, we'd get some who say yes and, and some who just say, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I don't know. I think that's probably a stiff penalty not understanding the depth of our depravity and our sin. Ezra gets it like, hey, we deserve more than you've given us. We deserve your penalty, your wrath, but your mercy has been overwhelming to us, God. And yet we haven't learned our lessons in this. When will we as the church learn our lesson that things could be so much better? You know, God's hand could come back down. That God could rest his blessing on his people again if we would just return, if we would just learn the lessons that humanity have struggled with throughout our faith. Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for no one can stand before you because of this. Ezra thanks God for allowing them another chance to get it right, for his mercy and his grace, for his benevolence in this, that they would have one more shot to get it right. That's like looking at the last 18 months of COVID and just watching as the church has, has publicly argued and been divided and been hyper-political, who has struggled over obeying things. When, when scripture is very clear, right? I mean, there's some very clear calls. Don't, you know, stop worshiping God. Don't worship anything else. Those are some clear calls. But then the rest of it is, but then submit to the authorities, right? But then live in such a way where your witness to the world is good, where you care for those 
who don't understand or, or may not agree or whatever, you would live in such a sacrificial way that others will see Jesus, right? And yet we see the church, even today, half of the church will show up today. Some will sit inside, some will sit out on outdoors today, and half the church will stay home. Much of that for political, for, for mask reasons or for other reasons, or for I just don't like to go to church this way. But at what point are we not asking, like, what is God calling us to do? Like, how much value does God put on us gathering together and worshiping him, even if it's inconvenient? Even if it's in a way that is limited or frustrating or been politicized, but the church has been super unhealthy. And as we look at this and, and when we talk about it openly, we're like, okay, we have another opportunity. We still have the opportunity to be the church, to grow to become healthy. I don't mean grow in numbers, I mean grow in maturity. But it takes work. It takes repentance, it takes change. It takes commitment, it takes humility. It takes letting go of things we wanna hang on to. It means doing things we are not comfortable with or don't like. But here we are. Ezra and the people in Jerusalem are going through this as he corporately calls out their sin and, and confesses that they deserve God's wrath, but they're grateful that God hasn't destroyed them yet. And they recognize we have another chance right now. God is giving us a chance. The same opportunities before us as before them. There's opportunity. As long as we have breath in our lungs, there's opportunity. We have opportunity to draw nearer to God as long as we have breath in our lungs. I'm gonna put this on the screen. There's this long prayer of confession. Ezra confesses the sin that defines their community, thanking God for his mercy. How should we practice lamenting the sins of the church community today? We don't do any of this for the most part. The church in America doesn't do any of this for the most part. We're not good with lament. We're not good with confession. We're not good with corporate prayer. We're not good at gathering together and recognizing, hey, we've blown it. We kind of suck at this whole thing and need change. We like those messages that come in and just tell you how much God loves you and how you're going to heaven and then send you back on your way. And, but we need moments like this. These are those hard conversations you have in your home right before you make significant change for the better in your life. And we as a church don't like those conversations. If we do a song that's too confession or too slow or too lamenting, like, oh, just felt sad. Why don't we do this together? Why can't we just lay things down and say, listen, we're far away. How do we do better? So what would it take for us to collectively make such significant change? So I'm going to go quickly through Ezra 10. We'll put a lot of notes on the screen as we go. Again, all these notes are inside the app if you want to try and capture them or whatever. Ezra 10 verse 1, it says, Well, Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God. A very great assembly of men and women and children gathered to him out of all Israel. For the people wept bitterly. Right? So what would it take for us to put Jesus first? To really, really put Jesus first, not just in word, but in life, in action, in deed. The first one is a truly broken heart. Ezra is heartbroken by their corporate sin. We'll put this up. Ezra is heartbroken by their corporate sin, for, by their corporate sin, excuse me. For us to be transformed, we have to have this deep, be this deeply affected by our own sins and the sins of the modern church. 
right? Ezra's heartbroken for something he's not even guilty of, but he is, he is a part of the community, and the community is, is identified by this. The community is saturated with this. They've been accepting this, and he's heartbroken. He's moved to grieving and fasting and praying. We have to have this level of lament, of grief, if we're going to change. We need to see the need. We need to feel the need. We need to feel the pain of the need to cause us to change. Verse two, and Shechaniah, the son of Jehaliel, the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra, we have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the people of the land. But even now there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, verse three, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. And so we'll put this up, confession and repentance. The people confess their sin to God and change how they live. For us to be truly transformed, we must begin by confessing our sin and then actually repent. It's not enough for them just to get together and say, listen, we've done a lot of things that are wrong and and we're sorry, God, and, and, and we want to do better, God. They actually have to make the changes. These changes are about them intermarrying with people who don't worship God, who have false worship practices. And the only conclusion they've got is to separate themselves from those marriages for the sake of their children and their community. Now again, that opens up a whole conversation we could have on another day, but they're actually being called to take a stand by God. And so they confess this, yes, but then they start to take action. Verse four, arise for it is your task and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and the Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. And so they took the oath. Like they make a commitment to one another. They make a commitment, an oath before God. They use strong language for a reason, that they're going to do this together. Just look at our, our level of commitment to a local church today. As soon as we do something here that you're like, oh, I don't like that, we'll just go to the church around the corner or the church down the street. There's this lack of covenant community within the church. So there's this lack of any teeth to anything of saying, hey, We've really messed this up, but together we're going to return. Together we're going to make an oath, a covenant. We're going to do this. We're going to change together. And so what we lose is not just our, our, what we've already got is that lack of commitment to a community, but what we lose is that community journey of doing it together, where we all struggle and work through the pain together. And they have that. They, they Literally, to live in Jerusalem right now is to be Jewish. And they come together and admit, hey, this sin defines us of not putting faith in our families first. We're going to change that, and we're going to change it together. And they make that covenant together. A part of us changing, transforming, being different is having that relationship together. We'll put this up. Community of faith. Ezra leads the people who repent by working alongside them. For us to be truly changed, we must live in a spiritual community and walk together as one. We began talking about this and said, okay, we're going we're to take Sunday nights in community groups and go every other week on Sunday nights and every other week in community groups. And we're going to study not the book of Acts, but the church inside of Acts. We're going to study the church, right? What did the church do? How did they live? What did it look like to, you know, when people came to faith and what, what was the message they were giving? How did they do these things? And and really, and, and just this corporate call to all. And we've got this small group of people who are gathering together 
And it's a struggle. It's a struggle. We see the struggle even to get participation. But beyond that, we see the struggle to do these things, to really what it would take to look like the church. Because they did everything together. They committed to one another. They cared for one another. They lived in genuine community with one another. They prioritized the church and their faith over everything. And they lived in such a way that it was so significantly different that at times just the way they lived was attracting other people to Jesus. But we don't have that kind of corporate commitment to one another, a community of faith. Verse 6. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehokanan, the son of Eliashib, where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. So here's what he does. After they have this conversation, and he prays this prayer of confession and lament over the condition of the people of God, the response is the people also join that confession. They confess, we've done that, you're right. And we deserve God's wrath. We're grateful that God has shown us grace, that we have a chance. The people say, we're grateful. Even though we're undeserving, we're grateful. And so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna draw a line and we're gonna prioritize faith in our homes. If that means separating if that means sending those people back to their country, those people who do not worship God, then we're not going to do that. We're not going to raise up another divided generation who some worship God and some worship other things. We're not going to do that. If that means it rips our home in half, that's what it means. But we're going to confess this sin to God that we have violated what God has told us to do, and we're going to act and repent. Now understand, this is a theocracy. This is a nation whose law is what God says. We live in a democracy whose law, theoretically, is what we say, right? So it's not God's laws that we live on. So different setting, different commands, different result. What I want you to hear is they say we will put faith first in our families, no matter the cost. If that means giving up this outside activity because it's getting in the way of church, we will give this up. If this means refocusing our finances, refocusing our education, refocusing our values, prioritizing our faith and our family, we will do that no matter the cost. And so they rise up and say, we agree and we covenant and we commit and we'll do it together. And then I love what Ezra does. And then he goes away and he continues to fast and to pray. And we'll put this up, spiritual disciplines. Transformation isn't one time. It's not a one and done. It's ra a rather a long obedience. For us to be truly changed, we will need to learn to pray and fast as Christians always have. I love the words that Jesus says, when you fast, do this or don't do this. He didn't say if you fast. The assumption is you need to fast. The assumption is you need to pray. You need to pray together. You need to pray alone. You need to pray in your families. You need to pray in your communities. You need to pray in your community groups. You need to pray in your church. You need to be a people of prayer. In response to that, the disciples will teach us to pray then. Like, teach us, like, give us some help here. Ezra goes, and he spends that time fasting and praying. We treat these moments where God speaks to us and said, there's this thing in your life that I want out of your life. Or there's something you need in your life. However, whatever it is God is saying to you. 
And we think, okay, good, because we're going we're gonna to make that commitment today. And we're going to come forward. We're going to do communion, and we're going to pray about this. And good, we're set, right? But no. It seems like next week comes, and the same struggle's there. Because transformation isn't one time. It isn't a one and done. It isn't this thing that we come in one way and leave another. Now, the change may have been started, but it needs to be lived out. And Ezra knows that it's that deep, long, embedded spiritual practice of prayer and fasting that helps with the transformation, not only of his, but of the community that he's in. And as a church, a church in America, as Church Generations Church, we're just not good there. Just weak when it comes down to spiritual disciplines. We ask people, hey, listen, we're going to study the book of Acts. Just read all the way through the book of Acts. Or read this section. We're going to be in it tonight. It's just even that. It's even reading. It's up getting up to spend that daily time in prayer before we go about the rest of our day. That daily time we get up and read scripture. We just struggle. And, and our struggle is no different than the church down the street. We're a product of the culture that we're in. And that will never change without deeply pursuing God. A time where we begin to sacrifice our comforts, our likes and dislikes, and give that committed time to God. That's the only way we're going to be strong enough to take those steps of transformation that God calls us to, whatever they may be, individual or corporate. But today we have an opportunity. It's not, a, it's not an opportunity to fix everything. It's an opportunity to take that first step. Today, as we celebrate communion together, we have this moment this moment that Jesus taught his disciples that on the night he was betrayed, when he took bread, when he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. He was teaching them, listen, I'm going to endure brokenness so that your life can be made whole. I'm going to be broken so that you don't have to be, so that you can be whole. You're already broken and sinful, but I'm going to take that from you. And so he blessed the bread, he broke it, and he gave it to him. And he said, take and eat. And he took a cup and he blessed and he said, this is a covenant. My oath, my covenant, my promise to you, my blood, that your sins will be forgiven. And he blessed and he gave it to him and he says, do this in remembrance of me. And then as the church progresses and practices this over and over, Paul writes to the church in Corinth and he says, listen, as often as you eat of the bread, and you drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. You proclaim the power of the gospel over you until Jesus returns to you. The power resides in Christ, not in us. We don't leave here today thinking, oh, we're going to go try harder. Instead, what we do is we leave our efforts here at the foot of the cross, and we allow Jesus to transform us. Our biggest job is to stay out of the way, frankly, and let the gospel transform us by the power of the Spirit. Let Jesus, what he's accomplished for us, take root in us. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite the band up and invite the elders and their wives to come up and serve us communion. And as, when I'm done praying, I'm going to invite you. Just come forward as you're ready. Maybe take a time and pray and confess. Maybe just do that work with God. But then come here knowing that, just, that this is not just a, a memorial, a celebration, but this is a means of grace. This is a place where your strength, your, your faith is strengthened as Jesus meets us in this moment. That mediator, again, Jesus hanging between God and humanity. That mediator for us, strengthening us, bringing us to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you.
We are called to you. We're changed by you and empowered by your spirit for your glory. We often are far from you. In fact, I, I would say that even when we feel close to you, we're farther than we should be. And as a community, corporately, be it in our nation or in our city or even just in this, this church, we struggle with sins that we just accept. We struggle with lives that are halfway in and halfway out. We live in a community and a culture that accepts that. But God, you want so much more from us. You want to lay your hand of blessing back down on us. You want our lives to be rich and abundant and full in ways that we've never even understood or could fathom because our lives are wound up completely and wholly in you. And so Jesus, help us, call us. It's, it's a step at a time, we get that. We know it's, it's one thing at a time, but we know it's also a perpetual one step and then another step and another step. And even when we fall back, it's getting back up and taking those steps towards you. Jesus, we also know that no matter how far away from you we are, as long as we are pointed on to you, fixed on you, that we are in you and walking towards you, we know that you empower that. We know when we fall away, you call us back and you hold us secure with that promise that you hold us in your hand and no one can steal us away. Not us, not Satan, not anyone can steal us out of your hand. So teach us to be your faithful church. Help us to be a church, a community of people on this journey together with that life interwoven with one another in you. As we take communion today, draw our hearts to you. Break the chains that hold us. Forgive the sins that define us and let us be defined by you. It's in your name we pray, amen.